So a rain out yesterday means we get a doubleheader today, the first of the season. We'll preview the game that we didn't already preview, and we'll dig a little bit into the StatCast stat barrels, and then I'll answer some listener questions on today's Locked on Tigers podcast. It is Tuesday, April 23rd, 2019, and I am your host, Chris Brown. And as always, I remind you to please download, rate, and review the show on any of your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Himalaya. And if you have a smart device, just go ahead and tell it to play podcast Locked on Tigers. So yeah, we already previewed the Sale Boyd matchup in Monday's show, and that appears to be set for the 110 matchup today. But then the nightcap will be Spencer Turnbull taking on Hector Velasquez. And I imagine Tigers fans are roughly as familiar with Velasquez as Red Sox fans are with Turnbull. So let's take a look at him real quick. Uh, He's a 30-year-old righty the Red Sox signed out of the Mexican League in 2017. Had never pitched in affiliated pro ball until then. And he spent most of 2017 in AAA, but he did make his Major League debut that year. And last year, he was Boston's main right-handed long reliever. He got eight spot starts in 85 innings, and he seems to be filling that same role again this year, sort of the swingman. And he's kind of a classic junk baller. He's got a pedestrian fastball in the 88 to 92 range, and a sinker at about the same velocity, and then he'll break out the occasional slider and curve. But his primary secondary pitch is a splitter at about 85 to 87 miles per hour. Nothing's really plus there, but he'll mix and match and keep hitters off balance. Uh, In his last outing, he only pitched three innings and gave up one run on two hits and four walks, which is kind of ugly. So I suspect he'll probably be limited to three to four innings again today. And then my best guess, I don't believe the teams have announced this, is we'll see Tyler Thornburg or their 26th man that you get during doubleheaders. And the call-up could be Chandler Shepard, who seems like the most logical choice because he's already on the 40-man roster and he's scheduled to start for Pawtucket anyway. But yeah, we, we won't really know until they announce it. And if it is Thornburg... He's a guy who's kind of prototypical mid-90s high-spin fastball curve mix, although his fastball's been getting absolutely murdered this year. And if it's Shepard, he's kind of a classic quad-A pitcher, low-90s fastball, a curve that will occasionally show above average in an average changeup. Think like an Artie Lewicki from the Tigers. As for Turnbull, he's never faced any of these hitters, and he's never pitched in Fenway, so it's kind of pointless to speculate. But this year's Red Sox club has been below average against power pitchers, and I guess Turnbull would qualify and that he's been limp good at limiting power in his career so far. So sure, maybe he pitches well. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, as for the Tigers' choice of the 26th man for the doubleheader, my guess is it's Matt Hall. He seems to make the most sense. He's on the 40-man roster already, and he would be on his regular turn in the rotation as well. So yeah, one, one thing I noticed when looking at the stats, today's starters rank 7th and 10th in terms of lowest run support in baseball. Turnbull is getting... 2.14 runs of support per nine innings. Boyd is getting a much heftier 2.59, but those aren't even the, the lowest on the team. Zimmerman is getting 1.65 runs per nine innings. So yeah, we talk about how the offense is bad, but yeah, it's, it's the Tigers' offense is putrid, and, and I kind of thought this might be a good time to discuss the stat barrels. So I've mentioned StatCast a bunch on the show, but never really explained what StatCast is. I think I figure most of you know, but just in case, it's basically Major League Baseball's proprietary data set that they pull. They have cameras set up all over each stadium, and they keep track of everything on the field, and they get all this, you know, terabytes of data, and they share a tiny fraction of it with us, the fans. And barrels are are probably StatCast's signature stat. And the the quickest way to describe that is a barrel is the best thing a hitter can do, and conversely, it's the worst thing a pitcher can give up. But it's the more specific definition is it's a batted ball event whose comparable hit types in terms of exit velocity and launch angle have led to a minimum 500 batting average and 1.500 slugging percentage. So, yeah, a batting average of 500 or slugging percentage of 1,500. That minimum is actually much lower than the actual results for barrels. Last year, barrel resulted in 
a 772 batting average at a 2630 slugging percentage, with about 54% of those barrels becoming home runs. So far this year, it's a 781 average and a 2687 slugging with about 57% of barrels going for home runs. So again, this is, it makes sense. It's a barrel. When you square up the ball and hit it really hard, you get a barrel. And you can look at the StatCast leaderboards on this at MLB Savant, or Baseball Savant, I'm sorry, and you see the guys with the most barrels, they make sense. It's Christian Yelich, who's leading baseball in home runs this year, Cody Bellinger, Mike Trout, Chris Davis, Joey Gallo, Peter Alonzo, basically all the home run leaders. On the Tigers, Kristen Stewart leads with seven barrels, and Nico Godram has six. It makes sense. They've got three and two home runs. But the other thing you can go do is go through the leaderboard and look at which hitters have the most barrels without a homer. And here's that leaderboard. Number one, Nicholas Castellanos with six barrels and no home runs. Number two, Miguel Cabrera with five barrels and no home runs. Number three, Jordy Mercer with five barrels and no home runs. Number four is Byron Buxton with four. Number five is Justin Turner with four. And number six is Jamer Candelario with three barrels and no home runs. So yeah, if we think back, barrels result in homers about 55% of the time, and yet the Tigers have four players who have combined for 19 barrels and zero homers. So obviously there's some bad luck going on, but I want to look to see if we can find out the real issue here. And, and part of this has got to be Comerica Park. Don't tell Lynn Henning. Because last year, Castellanos had the 15th most barrels in all of baseball with 53, but only 20 of them left the yard. So 38%, about 17% fewer than you would expect. So he finished 50th in home runs. So yeah, it just it, it happens to him consistently. Cabrera's issue seems to be a bit different. He was second in average exit velocity last year, and he's 11th this year. His problem is the launch angle of the equation. Uh, Back in 2015, his exit velocity was basically the exact same as it is now, and his average launch angle was 12.3 degrees. In 2016, it was identical. He was hurt in 2017, so the exit velocity was down a bit, but the launch angle was still 12.2, basically the same. But then, last year, the launch angle was down suddenly 5 degrees. This is before he got hurt, or before for the season at least, to 7.3 degrees. And this year, it's 8.4, up a little bit, but still down from where he was 2-3 years ago. And you see it, he's hitting way more ground balls this year and last year than he ever did before. And I can't tell you why this is happening. He's still hitting the hell out of the ball, but he's just now hitting it on the ground more. And so it seems crazy, but it's almost like he would appear to be a good candidate for a swing change. But I'm not telling a four-time batting champion to change his swing, and I'm pretty sure Lloyd McClendon isn't either. So maybe it's just an early season blip, but maybe we might have to come to grips with Cabrera being more of a Maglio or Donia's-style line drive hitter who tops out at 15 to 18 homers now. I don't know. It it sure would be nice to see him getting some more balls in the air. Speaking of balls in the air, let's talk about sex. Good sex. Remember the days when you never had to worry about your launch angle? Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in the bedroom. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill, so you can get back to swinging that big stick. Now, this isn't just for guys who can't perform. It's for any guy who wants extra performance in the bedroom. Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. So no in-person doctor's visit, no talking to a pharmacist, and best of all, no more awkwardness. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code MLB. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code MLB, to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. So yesterday, because of the rainout, I put out a call for questions, and you guys delivered. So thanks, as always, for listening and participating. A couple of the questions were pretty similar. Uh, Detroit Pistons, Pistons uh, asked timelines for Manning and Mize. 
And then Timothy Steer asked, in regards to starting the service time clocks for our top prospects, will we keep our top guys down maybe even for another year plus? So I think I can answer the first question within the second question. First, for those who aren't fully aware of how it works, as a general rule, once a player reaches the major leagues, his team controls him for six full seasons. The first three at roughly the major league minimum salary of about $500,000, $550,000. And then the next three years are at an escalating percentage of what he would expect to get as a free agent. And that dollar value is kind of agreed upon by the player in the team or it's settled by an independent arbitration officer. The thing is a full season is considered to be 172 days on the 25-man roster and the actual season is only about 190 days long. So if teams keep a player in the minors for like an extra three weeks to start the year or maybe a month, they then have control of that player for basically a seventh full season. They get them for five months, one year, and then six full years. So that's, you know, called manipulating the service time and teams doing it because it's smart for them. It sucks for the players, but that's just the way it is right now. And when the Tigers were competing, they didn't care about this at all. They brought Rick Porcello up on opening day in 2009 as a 20-year-old, and they did, They could have waited a month and had him for the extra year, but they thought he was one of their best five starters and they wanted to compete, so they brought him north. Now, as it happened with him, they ended up getting that extra year for him anyway because he kind of had a rough patch there in his second season, and they sent him down to Toledo for a month. And Nick Castellanos was a similar situation. They brought him up at the end of 2013 just to get a taste of baseball, the major league level, for about 10 games. And then he's basically played every day since when he wasn't injured. So this is his sixth full year, and after this year he's going to be a free agent. Now they could have waited an extra month or so and they'd have him for next year too, but again, they were trying to compete. Things are different now. The Tigers aren't really trying to compete. So with that out of the way, what do we think about the current top prospects in the system? And I think mostly it depends on age and position. Their top group of healthy prospects, uh, Casey Mize, Matt Manning, Isaac Paredes, and Daz Cameron, they'll all be 22 or younger the entire season this year. Cameron's already at AAA Toledo. Mize will likely be heading from Lakeland to AA Erie within the next three weeks or so. And all four of these guys could still be up in Toledo by July or August, basically all knocking on the door. And I don't think there's a chance we'll see Manning, Mize, or Paredes and I'd go 50-50 with Cameron. Maybe maybe that's too high. Maybe more like 75-20, we don't see him. Uh, I say I, I think the most likely time we see any of these guys is around May or June of 2020 because, yes, they're going to want to manipulate that service time. And once they come to Detroit, I think they're going to stay here for good. Now, the one other option we could see is what every other team seems to be doing is signing their young players to deals that buy out their arbitration years and then another year or two of free agency. But it's hard to speculate on the Tigers doing that because they've never done it yet. But uh, in any event... Getting that extra year of service time for these younger players means that they're going to end up with the age 29 seasons for Cameron and Mize, and the age 28 season for Manning, and the age 27 season for Paredes. So theoretically, all four of those guys could still be in their prime and producing at that age. And if they don't manipulate their service time, they're going to lose them at you know 28, 27, and 26. So the other option is who might who might we see get called up this year? And I think. If anyone, it's going to be like the catcher Jake Rogers, who's already 24, and Kyle Funkhauser, who's already 25. Because are you really concerned about getting the age 31 season of a catcher or the age 32 season of a reliever? I I don't think so. I think if they want to see those guys, they'll bring them up. We might see some fringe prospects like Jake Robson and Danny Woodrow because they don't figure to be a huge part of the future and the Tigers might just want to get a look at them. And I think we could also see a couple of younger guys like Willie Castro and Bo Burrows because they likely wouldn't be up for good Like, they might come up this year and play a little bit, but probably wouldn't be back on the 25-man roster next year, so they could essentially still get that seventh year out of them. And then you have to look at the 40-man roster implications of all this, but I won't get into that. We're just uh, kind of spitballing here. So, another question I got from Kay Seals. He said, if Hill keeps up this hot start, how much does his stock increase? And the Hill in question here is Derek Hill, Detroit's first rounder in 2014. He's a speedy center fielder 
who's had injury issues and has never hit much or shown any power, but he already has three homers this year to go with three doubles and two triples. So he could be breaking out, and that would be a welcome sign. And I'll say this, if he's showing real power, it would be a, a huge step in his development, assuming the speed and defense are still plus or better. And it doesn't have to be above average or even average power. If he can be a viable threat to hit 10 home runs in a season, that raises his prospect stock substantially. It, it doesn't make him a potential star by any means, but it turns him into basically, you know, from a poor man's Billy Hamilton who gets like 10 games as a fourth or fifth outfielder to a potential second division regular like Leonis Martin or Kevin Pillar. And that doesn't sound like terribly sexy, but we still have to acknowledge that he's still got plenty of other faults, even if he does start hitting for power. He's, he's only walking at a 5% rate. He's striking out about 25% of the time. And his batting average on balls in play is hovering around 400 right now, which means that regular batting average is going to come down a lot. He's definitely not going to hit 330 for the season. I suppose 270 is possible, but don't be shocked if his batting average ends up lower, like 240 or 250. Now, if you really want to dream on him, you could see the power develop and then the contact rise, and the strikeouts fall, and then you've got a potential Kevin Kiermeyer. But for me, I'll just stick to crossing my fingers and hoping it becomes Kevin Pillar. And finally, John Lumpkin asks, will Shane Green need a place to stay in Cobb County, Georgia, after the trade? So John is clearly offering his house and possibly his bed to Shane Green after a theoretical trade to the Braves. And with the way Shane Green has pitched so far, he certainly looks like he'll be a, a trade target for a lot of teams, including the Braves. And don't rule out any of the other relievers if they're pitching well this year. Buck Farmer, Joe Jimenez... Drew Verhagen, everything must go. Uh, your relievers have a short shelf life. Go ahead and get rid of them all if you can get anything out of them. Uh, and like I said, the Braves would be a nice fit uh, as their current crop of relievers is among the worst in baseball. But you can say the same thing about St. Louis and the Cubs and the Nationals and the Red Sox and just about anybody. Any, any team that wants to contend could use a reliever who's pitching well and has closer experience. So as long as the Tigers don't screw this up and Green stays healthy and productive... They should get a decent prospect in return. So that's it for the questions. I really appreciate you guys asking me those and giving me a chance to talk on these topics. And that's it for the show. So thanks to everybody for listening. Go out there and enjoy a doubleheader in Fenway. That's pretty fun. And we'll see if the Tigers can't uh, get one or two wins out of this. And I'll be back tomorrow to talk to you about the results. And uh, just one last reminder, please write and review the show. And, uh, you know, tell your friends because I could always use more listeners. So thanks and have a good one.